congratulations on making it out of residency. And now you're probably thinking, what the heck happens to my finances? Well, at this point, the primary focus should have been on setting some goals and making a budget. Yeah, I dropped the dreaded B word in the first 10 seconds of a show. Please hear me out on it. Your job's going to introduce you to things like employer benefits, retirement savings. You're going to learn what you're really going to get to take home from your paycheck after taxes are taken out. Yeah, thanks, Uncle Sam. So how well are you doing at this point? And hopefully this show will help you put together a basic financial plan post-graduation. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. You guys are amazing. I know I tell you guys that all the time, but you really are. The show wouldn't be even remotely close to what it is without all of you. So thank you for putting out with my nerdiness and my super dumb humor. But to be honest, I don't think it'd be a fun show without a little cheesy humor. We have just hit 750,000 downloads. It blows my mind. And I want to thank you guys so much for being a part of this and for sharing it with other physicians and physician families that can really benefit from understanding personal finance. So if you've gotten any value out of this, please share this with them and hopefully we can help them take back control over their finances and change their financial lives. So this episode is really just me. Sorry, it's just me. And we're going to be talking and addressing really creating a post-graduation financial plan. Now, most of you probably know the basics of around your student debt because you've been in an income-driven repayment or establishing a budget. Yes, again, the dreaded B word. But you're also going to need to think about your goals and how you are going to use this newfound money that you're about to be paid, which really, let's be honest, it's you're finally getting paid what you're worth and not paid peanuts as a resident. But how are you going to celebrate wins and how is your relationship with money going to change? Because we see it a lot. Lifestyle inflation takes control. And if you don't hit it head on, you're going to be in a lot of trouble in about three to five years. And that's sometimes when people come to work with us and I keep going, man, I wish you would have really reached out to me a few years early. We could have helped you establish some good financial behaviors and kind of addressed a plan in the beginning. And that's what I want you guys to do here. You don't have to work with us. We do work with physicians nationwide and you can come do that if you'd like. But this is a full show to help you build out a basic financial plan post-graduation. And this is probably also a good time to mention that if you want more of this episode to make sense, you should probably read our book. It's Financial Residency, Create a Financial Plan Without the Long Hours and Sleepless Nights. You can go to financialresidency.com slash book and check it out. It's on Amazon and it will really help you build out a financial plan with lots of templates and checklists and all sorts of good stuff. And Taylor and I, of course, would love if you guys supported that, but I know that it's going to be a huge help for you as you make this transition. Now, as we kind of go through this piece, I want to say this is going to mimic a little bit about how our financial fellowship goes, which is our 12-week curriculum that we do group planning with a bunch of physicians all across the country. And when we do this, the first thing we are actually talking about is getting organized because most of you have some sense of where things are at. It's up in your head. And the best thing that we can do in the beginning is to get it out of your head and onto paper. And so one of the softwares that we use is called a mind map. Now you can go download a template online for free. You can just write it on a piece of paper. There's a template that came along with the book. There's plenty of ways to do this. 
But either way, you're going to be writing things from your head down on the paper. And I really like the way that a mind map lays this out. And it's just a visualizing data and the data is your financial data. And so what I'd like you to do is on a piece of paper, really to break out a couple big pillars here. And usually it's seven big pillars and that's banking, real estate, debt, investments, cash flow, insurance, and estate planning. And so if you thought if you're going to write these things down, you know, just on a blank piece of paper, you're going to want to basically take an inventory of everything that you have. You don't have to go super nerdy and write balances and exact interest rates and all that stuff. This is more meant to give you a high level of where things are at. If you want some help in this piece, I have a checklist that you can go download for free at financialresidency.com slash FR checklist. And I am going to, by the way, give a bunch of links out in this show because there are some really good resources that you can utilize. So if you download that checklist, you'll be able to kind of walk through and build out this mind map. That's the first step, right? Is to understand just the lay of the land. Where are everything at that's not in your head, but on a piece of paper. The next thing I'd like you to do is to really get organized around your physical and your digital lives, right? Your physical life, right? Think about snail mail. You have mail that comes into your mailbox. You sort through it and you toss out all the random crap and coupons. And then you're going to basically do something with the rest of the mail that comes in. I actually think you should have a bin that you basically address it weekly and you go through, you scan, you pay bills, whatever it is. I don't think you need to be doing it every day. But on the digital side, you have your email inbox. And most of us just have an email inbox. You open it up and whatever it is, bills or financial data, you just say, oh, I'll I'll deal with it later. And you don't do anything. You don't archive it. You don't label it. You don't tag it. And it just kind of sits there. That'd be the equivalent to going to your mailbox, sorting it, and then sticking stuff back in your mailbox and walking back inside. It doesn't make any sense. So have some structure around your email inbox. One thing I do is I have things that need to be responded to, need to be reviewed, things that I'm awaiting a response. And Google has a priority inbox that I love. I use across all the businesses, my personal life, everything. Organize it the exact same way and it helps me keep track of everything that I'm doing. While you're in there, make sure you just unsubscribe to a bunch of promotional emails that honestly you're never going to read, but it's probably going to tempt you to buy something. Don't do it. Just unsubscribe from that stuff. It'll be okay. And I would also address some of your file structure because as you're going to go and grab a bunch of these files or a bunch of this thing, data that's all around your house, hopefully it's not just buried in a drawer, right? You'll create some sort of organizational system, but digitally everything should be scanned and put into some sort of file structure. So I've got, you know, my banking, my debt, whether it's employment or estate planning or my financial plan, all of these have different folders in my Google Drive. And then That's where I know that I'm sticking each one of these. So start to organize my financial life. It's super, super important to do that in the beginning before you make any changes whatsoever, including a budget. I know I said it, even before a budget, get organized is really important. The next thing that I'd like you to start doing is to think about setting some goals and understanding where you'd like to go in the next one, three, five, maybe even 10 years if you are super ambitious. This is a little bit tougher. I've had some shows talking about goals and what's important and how to think through with the three questions that we had with George Kinder. And I had Taylor on the show talking about those. We've done some behavioral finance shows to kind of help you think around your mindset around money. But I want you to think through what would your ideal life look like? What are some of the opportunities that are coming up? What are some of the challenges coming up? 
and to actually write these things down because this will kind of act as that North Star for you as you're starting to put together this mini version of a financial plan. I also want you to think a little bit about truthfully, the relationship that you have with money. And most of the time when I say that, people are like, what are you absolutely talking about? I don't get it. Well, there's different things behaviorally that affect our decisions. And so doing some light reading on this and just kind of understanding, we've done some shows on it. I've had Sarah Fala on talking about characteristics that physicians have and how you can actually change your your viewpoint around money to increase the probability or the likelihood that you will succeed in achieving your financial goals. But one of the things I saw this video, and I think it was really fascinating that I'd like to just talk about here for just a second. And it was different things that we associate and the ways that people market to us. And one of them was called the decoy effect. And this was a specifically a TED talk that was presented. And this man said that he had a hundred students from MIT and he asked them this question. If you had the ability to take an online subscription for $59, the print version for $125 or an online and a print version for $125, which would you choose for this magazine? And it was something like in the high 80 percents, like 87 or 88% chose the online and print versions collectively for the $125 because they valued it as a better deal. Well, the middle one there was just a decoy, the print version for $125. And that is called the decoy effect. It literally meant nothing. It could have literally been deleted and had the same effect, whether it's either online or online in print. So when he did that and he deleted that middle option to these 100 MIT students, by deleting that middle option of print for 125 and he asked the same question again, if you had the ability to take an online subscription for 59 or an online and print subscription for 125, it literally swapped results. 70% of the MIT students said, well, they would choose the online subscription because it was cheaper. And when you see this, it should make, why would anyone choose the middle option? And it's because they're anchoring you into that higher price. And I think that's really fascinating. I know I've fallen for this several times, probably dozens and dozens of times, honestly, if I really think back on it. And when I researched this, I realized it was a play on how we're wired and how we perceive things. And so I love this TED Talk. By the way, the magazine was The Economist. So it wasn't some tiny like mom and pop magazine. Massive magazine had done this. So I love this TED Talk, and I wanted to bring that up just as we're thinking about money, maybe even sometimes for the first time, you're thinking about your relationship with money. And I want to make sure that we address that appropriately. Now, talking about cash flow planning and switching into this. Now, I think the third thing here is you really got to look at your cash flow plan, right? What's coming in? What's going out? And I think everyone needs to budget for a minimum of six months. And this would be like actual hardcore budgeting, understanding the true flow of money. Not only will you understand how the money's moving and flowing through your bank accounts, it'll allow you to set up the correct banking structure, but it will also hopefully allow you to take the goals that you just were working through, those smart goals, and start translating into savings buckets that you are putting inside of your budget and you're actually gonna start making progress to them and you'll be able to check in. And the more that flows into those, the higher likelihood that you're going to be excited and honestly stick with it. 
And that's the whole point of some of these changes is to get you into a different groove, a different habit. And the more you do it, the more the habits build. And I really like cash flow planning, clearly. So does Casey. No surprise here, right? Because we view that the foundation of a plan is cash flow planning and goals. It's the very basic version of a financial plan. If you have those two things, you're going to go a long way into living a happier life. And the whole point is to drive home here is that we want your money working for the things that excite you. I'm not going to Marie Kondo this and talk about what sparks joy and that kind of stuff. But really, it's what excites you? Where do you want to spend your money? And let's make sure we allocate money for those things. And now you have a whole bunch of new money coming in. If we think about it early, you can actually line it up that the stuff that most physicians get trapped in when they're mid-career or late career is that they've wasted so much money on so many things that just weren't important. If you start with these really good behavioral habits right now, you're going to probably retire earlier, financial independent, probably significantly earlier than some of your peers, but you're probably just going to live a happier life because you're doing things and allocating money to things that really excite you. Now, something that won't excite you is student debt. And I totally understand that piece. And we've done a lot of shows on financial residency about student debt. So I don't want to go through deep dive into this. There's a couple pieces I want to say. One is around PSLF. Now we've done shows that talk about what PSLF is and why you're going to do it. And and that one of the most popular questions I get asked is, well, do you think PSLF will still be around? And even pre-COVID, I thought PSLF was here to stay. There's something called estoppel, which you entered this basically agreement with the government. You have a contract signed that this is the debt and that if you follow these certain criteria, which are not easily explained, this should be much easier, but if you follow these criteria, then you are going to get your debt forgiven. That's basically having the right employer, right? A 501c3. Having direct loans, that does not mean fell loans, that is direct loans. Easiest way to tell, look at your loans and does it say the word direct on them? You're in an income-driven repayment option, right? That could be repay, pay, IBR. There's a bunch, couple other ones that suck, but those are really the main three you need to know. And have you made 120 qualified payments? Those payments don't have to be in succession, didn't have to be one after another. If you miss one, you're out. They can happen over a 12-year period if you want. Hopefully not. But did those requirements get met? Did you make all the payments on time? Everything looks good. The debt's going to be forgiven. And we've seen a lot of these, 99% of the people got rejected for PSLF. Well, the reasons for that denial, 59% of the people that were denied forgiveness for their PSLF, 59% didn't even have 120 qualified payments. They hadn't even paid in for 10 full years. So if you've got 100,000 people rejected, 59,000 people didn't even have 10 years of repayment history. No kidding. That's why you got rejected. 23% of the people had errors on their application. Now, these applications are tough to fill out, I understand, but 23% had errors on their application. The other major reason that people were getting basically denied was 14% of them had the wrong loan type. So if you think about in 2007, only 21% of all the outstanding loans were direct loans. And that's because a large portion of these borrowers had FFEL loans or FEL loans when the program originally rolled out. So if you think about 
these. That's a staggering number of reasons why people were rejected. Now, of course, the media is not going to tell you these things. One, they probably aren't going to accurately research this. But two, it's not as sexy to tell you, well, 99% were rejected, but 92% of these reasons should be rejected because they didn't even have the right employer, the right they didn't have the right loan type, they weren't in the right repayment system, or they just flat out didn't have 10 years of repayment. That doesn't make a really cool article. So if you're going for PSLF, realize that it is okay. Keep, make sure, please, you're filing your annual employment certification forms. That is absolutely critical. If you are wondering if you have the right repayment option, that you're in the right repayment whether it's repay, pay, IBR, you can go to financialresidency.com slash loanbuddy, L-O-A-N-B-U-D-D-Y. That is the software that I am co-creator on that will tell you for free which repayment option you should be in. And if you've got some clarity around there that you're going for PSLF, you're in the right repayment plan, just keep making progress on that and it'll all will end well for you. Don't stress on that. If you are not going for PSLF and you know you should refinance, right now is almost the best time. September will probably be the best time to refinance when everyone's off the forbearance with 0% interest. So if you're listening after September 2020, you probably should just go refinance. But right now, we have never seen lower rates. We have some clients that are getting five-year variable rates at 0.5%. Now, Casey and I thought that was an error and two people in our fellowship also had sub 1% rates, but we have ran this now dozens of times and we are seeing rates so incredibly cheap that if you plan on paying off your loans in five years, which is a really good plan, by the way, then you should go and look at refinancing. And we have found that Credible's pretty much got the best rates out there. So go to financialresidency.com slash credible. That's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E, financialresidency.com slash credible and run your refinance rates there. Now I want to make sure that we just do a quick recap, right? We thought about organization. We thought about some goal planning. We actually talked about budgeting, which by the way, I love a couple of pieces of software we've talked on. YNAB, we used to talk about Tiller all the time. We like YNAB. I'm not so much a fan of Mint, just lots of ads. I know some people have loved it and used it for decades. I'm not a fan of personal capital because they are basically a financial advisor. That's a robo-advisor that will start spamming you with phone calls and emails once you have $100,000 loaded into their system. And they charge a 0.5% basically fee to manage it, which Betterment is half that cost. If you were to go through something like that or M1, which I'll talk about here on our listener question, but we went through budgeting and those pieces. We talked a little bit about relationship with money. We talked about student debt. And I think you can toss in eliminating normal debt inside of there. That would be auto, that'd be personal loans, credit cards. If you have that stuff, like please make sure that you are not overpaying, that you're actually putting a plan together to pay down that debt. So when you did your mind map, you should write out all your debts. And there's something called the snowball method. There's something called the avalanche method. Really, there's no right or wrong answer. Mathematically, I am a fan of paying off my highest interest first. I was to have that kind of debt because I don't want to pay a bank anything extra or credit or anything extra than I absolutely have to. The next piece I want to talk through is around getting the right disability policy. 
And there's two types of disability insurance, right? There's short-term disability coverage, which will cover you if you're out of work anywhere from seven days to, let's call it six months. And then there's long-term disability, which you can have it through your employer or which, and I highly recommend this, to go get insurance through an outside independent agent because the work coverage is just not going to be enough. And usually that coverage will start 90 days from claim. So that's called the elimination period. Now, the reason you would get disability coverage, this is one of the most, if not the most important types of insurance that you can have as a physician, is it will basically protect the savings you worked really hard to have. It'll give you some peace of mind that your expenses and your activities and your life will continue if you were to become disabled. But one in four, I mean, this is the statistics, one in four of us as Americans will go off on disability coverage before age 65. We're going to make a claim for that. Now, an emergency we know can happen at any time. So if you're rolling the dice, I wish you the best of luck. I hope you have no issues. But in medicine, you've seen it in your own profession, right? A perfectly healthy person could all of a sudden suddenly have a debilitating injury or disease or something, right? They'd get into an accident without any type of warning. And this is really, really important coverage for you guys to get. So I'd highly recommend getting that. And you do not want to just depend on your employer's insurance, really, because it's not going to be enough. Coverage limits are likely to be capped. It's taxed money that's going to come to you. So even if they're giving you 60% of your base salary, that money is going to get taxed. Whereas the supplemental policy that you would go through an independent agent will be after tax money. So it will not it will not get taxed when you get that. And the best part, you guys are going to switch jobs a lot. It's okay. It's just how life is now. The independent supplemental policy that you would get is portable, whereas your group insurance is not portable. Now, I want to just highlight, there's a lot of different riders that you could have. And you've probably heard you need own occupation. But I want to make sure that you understand that medical own occupation, which primarily comes from Northwestern Mutual, is something you should absolutely avoid because it's not really own occupation at all. It's really good marketing on their part, but it focuses on a loss of income versus the loss of ability to do your job. So let's say that you were earning $20,000 a month and you had a $10,000 monthly benefit. And as you start going back to work, you can earn $10,000. Well, your monthly benefit will pay out all as well. But if you earned, let's say, $15,000 in doing something completely different or you're working for the practice, but you couldn't do surgeries or, or anything, then your benefit would actually be reduced with the medical own occupation because it is, again, driven on loss of income and you didn't have a giant loss of income of more than $10,000. You only had a $5,000 loss of income. And Really, what the medical and occupation is saying is you get the privilege of paying 100% of your premium to potentially and likely get less than 100% of your benefit. Why would anyone want to do that? So they sell it, obviously, and they call it medical and occupation, but it really talks on the loss of income. And I just want you to be aware that if you have this type of policy, please seek an independent agent that is not going to sell you a bunch of crap that they will tell you the truth and help you rerun your quotes. If you haven't had a policy through Northwestern, consider yourself lucky and still go through independent agent to run your quotes. And you can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash disability quote. It'll take you to one of our sponsors who are great people and will do the right thing with your disability coverage. 
So the next piece that I want you to think about is really around your investments. And there's, I'm not going to go into kind of like what stocks and mutual funds and ETFs are. There's tons of great information out there. But what I want you to understand is there's various types of accounts, right? There's a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, a SEP IRA. There's traditional and Roth 401ks or traditional Roth 403bs. If you're, let's say, going into emergency medicine, you're going to be making 1099 income. You really need to know about a solo 401k. There's 457Bs, which are out there, which I'll probably do a whole show on at some point because those are really important to understand non-governmental versus governmental 457Bs. And then there's, of course, your individual or your joint taxable brokerage. And if you get to that point, awesome. That means you've maxed out everything else and you're still saving and investing through that type of an account. So those are all the important types of accounts out there. And I want you to understand that with your new money that you are earning, you are likely going to be phasing out of contributing directly to your Roth account. So you will likely have to do something called a backdoor Roth. Now, this is not specific planning advice. You can't have any money in a traditional or tax deferred setting in a traditional IRA or a SEP. So please don't just go start doing this without actually researching and understanding how that works. But you're not only going to want to understand how investing IRAs work, but also your 401k, your 403b. And if all said and done, you still have access to like a 457, there needs to be, I think, a lot more analysis that goes into that because that is not a similar account as like a 401k or a 403b. So now that we've talked a little bit about the types of accounts, I want you to also think about risk tolerance, right? Where are you on the scale of risk? And it's going to be hard to understand. I wish there were better questionnaires out there to help you understand how much risk you're taking. But I think a lot of those questionnaires are going to be rewritten based on the volatility of COVID and what happened. Now, if you are a resident and you have been investing as much as you could, which is probably not going to be very much, and you were checking the market in March and April, or even right now, trying to figure out what's happening and what's going on and should you make any changes, you're likely to have been invested way too aggressively. And there's a lot of good questionnaires out there. I know we had Sarah Flaw on who owns Data Points. She's also the author of The Next Millionaire Next Door. And she gave everyone the ability to take her online investor profile. And we're going to be coming out with a lot of really interesting analysis, anonymous, of course, with that data. So I can't wait to share that with you guys. But I want you to understand and to think about where you're at in terms of risk. Are you conservative? Are you balanced? Are you moderate? Are you aggressive? And typically with those, and again, this is not investment advice, but if you're a more aggressive investor, you're going to have probably about 80% of your total investments in stock and 20% of your total investments in bonds. If you're more moderate, you'll have something less like 65% of your investments in stocks and 35% of your investment in bonds. If you're more balanced, you'd probably be at a 50-50. And if you're more conservative than that, I'd probably say you need to think and study and read up a little bit more on investing in the markets because at a very young age, none of you are likely going to be conservative. But there's this need to take risk and the ability to take risk, right? I think actually before I go into that, I want you to understand one key thing. And I see this quite a bit. I don't know why everyone thinks this. But you don't have to hit home runs to win, you know, quote unquote, the investment game. You don't. You have to hit singles. So if you think, man, I've really got to invest really aggressively 
in 100% stocks because that's the only way I'm going to retire. Or I've got to take obscene amounts of risk and invest in super illiquid things in order to achieve financial independence. It's not correct. Your savings rate, especially early in your career, matters a ton. Matters an absolute ton. And you can control that. What you can't control is the market returns. No one can control what the market was doing because no one would have wanted a 35% drawdown in one month in the month of March. No one would have wanted that. Well, maybe a few people, they were short the market, but that's a whole different story. So I want you to take away that you don't have to hit home runs in order to quote unquote win. Now, there's a need to take risk and an ability to take risk. And if you think, well, I'm aggressive by nature, this is totally fine. I can be 100% stock or 90 or 80% stock, whatever it is. Again, not investment advice, but you are making $750,000 a year and you're saving four or 500,000 of that. Your need to take risk is actually very low. But your ability to take risk is actually quite high. And I would like you to think, really think through, even though your ability to take risk is that high, if you don't need to take that much risk, then why are you taking it? On the flip side, if your need to take risk, let's say, and I like to pick on peds because of Taylor and being a pediatric pulmonologist, but let's say you're getting paid 150K and you're only saving $10,000 a year, your need to take risk is actually going to be much higher because you're going to need that extra return to probably hit those financial goals. One and two, I'd probably say try to figure out how to save more money or the opposite, how to earn more money. But maybe you were a moderate and you were at 65% stock, 35% bonds. Well, your ability to take risk was actually lower than probably your need to take risk. And I think getting some education around why you take risk and what the markets are about and how to invest and why you're investing in index funds and passive strategies and highly diversified, low-cost funds. Again, not investment advice. And I think that will help your financial acumen increase and the ability to take risk will probably naturally increase with it. But I want you to understand the difference between need and ability to take risk. Because as you set up your accounts for the first time in those 403Bs or 401Ks, or maybe it's your first time contributing to an IRA, totally fine. I mean, great. You need to do those things. But I want you just to understand those two pieces. To finish this off, I want you to think about estate planning because now with more money coming in, you're going to need to take care of your estate. Now, estate is not just for the wealthy. I know that uh, it might think that way, but simply put, having an estate plan is to ensure that your assets, your debts, the property, your loved ones are cared for in a way that you choose even if after you're gone. And will offer you peace of mind to put it together. And I know that thinking about your death is not easy. And this is not a very pleasurable experience. We've had Nathan and Notesong from Thoughtful Wills, which I absolutely love them. That's who Taylor and I used. You can check them out at financialresidency.com slash TW. They were absolute pleasure to do business with and to put together and update our estate planning. But estate planning is really, really, really important. And I would say that 4%, and I've done this research, I haven't done it recently, but 4% of our clients started working with us actually had an estate plan. And so there's four pillars of an estate. There's a will, a power of attorney, living will, and a living trust. And a will is, at its simplest form, a legal document that's just stating your wishes. And it's going to ensure that your property and your personal items are carried for in the way 
that you want. A power of attorney is essentially giving legal permission for another person to act on your behalf. So please choose this person wisely and think about it this way. They will have access to pay for your accounts, your bills, make deposits or withdrawals from your account if you're unable to actually take care of this yourself. Now, a living will, they're called advanced care directives or thoughtful wills. They have a cleverly named coma documents. And this is a document that you might even be familiar with that just clearly states a person's wishes for their end of life care. And this is what will define your choices for medical treatment. And this is a document that is only valid up until the time of death because it is talking about how you're going to be taken care of. Do you want CPR or other life-saving measures, feeding tubes, if so, for how long? It details all of those pieces. And then a living trust or a revocable living trust is a way for you to legally entrust your affairs and estate to the oversight of a trusted individual who you are designating. And there's two types. There's a revocable living trust and an irrevocable. You will likely never set up an irrevocable, but you could at some point later on in your career. Right now would not be the time. So you will be setting up likely a revocable living trust. And this stuff can actually help reduce estate taxes, plan for care of your minor children, ensure family privacy. There's lots of reasons that you would set this up. And you're actually transferring assets, which you might think, I don't have any yet. You will, trust me, right? And you're going to transfer your assets into the trust. Your name doesn't go on the trust. Rather, it'd be the title. So like if you were to buy a house, it'd actually be owned by your trust, not by you individually. And really, I mean, think about the trust is going to have its own name separate from you. And these are the four pillars of estate planning that I want to just give you a quick overview on because they're really, really important. So as you're going through and putting together and getting organized and putting together this mini financial plan, as you can tell, there's a lot of pieces that are important that you're going to be addressing. And like I said in the very beginning, our financial fellowship is a 12-week curriculum that we will go through and talk about not only these things, but a whole lot more, right? Term insurance, property and casualty insurance, college planning. I mean, there's so many more things that go into this, but I wanted to give you guys a good overview of what I would look at tackling in the first three to six months after graduating. And this will get you well on your way to being more financially independent Uh, You won't hit financial independence, of course, in that amount of time, but it will help you understand the course and the path that you're taking. If you find that you need more assistance and more help, we are opening our financial fellowship. The next 12-week curriculum will be launching early August. So if you're interested and want to get on our waiting list, you can email me, ryan at financialresidency.com. We will have the site Financial Fellowship up and live probably towards the end of July. So if you're listening to this later, of course, it'll be there for future launches of our Financial Fellowship, but it's limited capacity. We're not taking on hundreds of people. Again, we've had two really cool groups go through and it's been a blast helping them build out their financial plans and they get to meet with me every two weeks in a group planning environment and ask all their questions. So everything I just talked about here, plus a whole lot more is in that 12-week curriculum. If you're interested, email me, ryan at financialresidency.com. 
All right. So from time to time, I get asked questions that are submitted to me via email or even called in. And one, I would love for you guys to call in more questions. We've probably got half a dozen questions that I can go through on air that I will be doing that. I used pretty much all of them in April when we were doing daily shows to talk through and answer your questions when you guys were, obviously all of us were experiencing a very tough time due to COVID. But we got maybe a half a dozen that I'm going to start adding this in to shows. And so our curbside consult from today is a voicemail from Rosie. So let's hear what Rosie has to say. Hey, Ryan. Thanks to you and the new financial residency book, my husband and I are crossing off one of our 2020 goals this month and opening up Roth IRA accounts since neither of our employers offer retirement plans. We plan to set up monthly automatic transfers and know that we want to be hands-off in terms of handling the investments. That's why we're debating between using a robo-advisor like Betterment that will do everything for us or potentially going with a larger, more well-known institution like Vanguard that may be better in the long term. We want to make sure that we're putting away as much money as we can right now, but we also want to make sure we're setting ourselves up well for after residency too. Understanding that all of this is personal, do you have any general recommendations on choosing the right institution for opening up retirement accounts? Thank you so much for all that you do. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rosie, for leaving a voicemail. Happy to answer the question here on air. Now, I agree that I think long-term, Vanguard will likely be the best option. We use a lot of Vanguard funds in our own practice, and I am generally a fan of Vanguard itself if you are comfortable making the trades and to kind of do all that yourself. I am not a huge fan of Betterment. I'm not a big fan of robo-advisors in general. If you were to go that route that you just want a little more technology to assist you, you want an app, I actually really like the firm M1 Finance. So you can go check them out at financialresidency.com slash M1. And what they do is basically they allow you to build out a portfolio. You could be even buying Vanguard there. It's free to trade. They actually let you do fractional shares and they allow you to have automation in your investments. So as you put money in, it will just automatically invest it for you. Now, not to say that you couldn't also do this at Vanguard. This is just another option. I think this is a more tech-friendly option. With It's on your phone. It's super quick and easy. If you wanted to have a more traditional custodian that you can log in on your desktop and it is known and vetted and lots of people love it, highly recommend Vanguard as well. Or as a firm, Physician Wall Services is at TD Ameritrade Institutional. TD is really stepping up their game on the tech side of things, especially for consumers. We're on the institutional platform. We're a little more ancient and antiquated, uh, but they're getting there. I know they're getting there and they're trying, but the consumer version, which is where you'd be logging in, is actually doing a really good job. Is it better than Vanguard? Probably not. Is it better than M1? Again, probably not. But I think that it is another good option out there. And that is on their institutional side. I think from an institutional standpoint, we love using them, that they are probably one of the best out there. Because for us, they have the way to automatically trade and rebalance using iRebound, which is not available to you on the consumer side. I would say Vanguard or M1. If you check out M1, go to financialresidency.com slash M1. 
If you would like your question answered on air, I'd be happy to do it. So please go to financialresidency.com slash question and make sure you leave me a voicemail. If you want to just email me, you can do that. Ryan at financialresidency.com. Happy to answer those emails as well. But generally, I will say I'd like to put them on the air because if you have a question, it's likely that like hundreds of others have questions too that are listening. So now it's time for our quick community update. And I always like this because things are happening and changing so frequently with our community. And one of those is around physician home loans. Now, tons of you have been asking for help around this. And so the team and I have put literally like around 100 plus hours into this. It is the most comprehensive list on the internet. Seriously, on the internet around physician loans in every single state. So we have all the banks that are offering loans in every single state. We've got some recommendations and our vetted lenders who we know, like, and trust who have sponsored our show or our website, but that are doing really good things that have competitive rates and are good people to work for. So if you want to go to financialresidency.com slash home loan, all one word, home loan, I highly recommend clicking on your state and finding out all the different lenders that are in your state and contacting them to run rates. This is probably going to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest buying decision that you will ever make in your life. And I highly recommend shopping around at a couple different lenders and making sure that you're getting the best deal to buy your home. Now, before we end, it's time for that important disclaimer. So please listen up really quick. Thank you so much for being here with me. I'm honored because like you just heard, this entire show is about a ton of different things, right? Cash flow budgets, goals, investments, all things super nerdy and money, right? And I know some of them aren't the sexiest, I get it, but you're here and that to me is what matters the most. So I work really hard at delivering great information in the podcast, but there's a catch. I don't know anything about you or what your financial needs are. Unless you're already a client at Physician Wall Services, then that's a totally different story. So please, before you do anything, consult an attorney, a CPA, or reach out to us, fee-only financial planners that work with physicians all across the country before taking any action or making decisions affecting your hard-earned money. Have a great week, and I will see you guys on Friday. Cheers. Cheers. 